In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Now, following the sermon Deacon Mary gave a few weeks ago, I decided to take her advice, and I allowed the collect for today to shape my thoughts and preparations in writing this sermon. We've heard it already today, and we've prayed it together in worship, but I'd like to frame our sermon with the way that this collect opens. Oh God, you know. You know. It's a bit hard to describe why this statement struck me and stuck with me throughout this week, but I believe it has to do with the fact that the triune God whom we worship today is omniscient. Simply put, God knows. It's this knowledge that David marvels over and uses to shape Psalm 139. Uh, As I was preparing, that phrase kept coming back into my mind, and it's verse 4, but it's this. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely. In Genesis, Sarah's servant, Hagar, names God as El Roy, or the God who sees. After a divine encounter in the desert, it's the first name that any human ever gives the Lord. The God who sees. The God who knows. Because God knows. And that is a powerful truth. We serve a God who knows. And that can be a comfort or it can be a terrifying fact, depending on what it is that we sit there and think of when we say God knows. It doesn't matter how we feel about God's omniscience. It does nothing to change the fact that God knows all and that even the smartest of us only know a fraction of what there is to learn. Today's passages, they all speak on knowledge, wisdom, and discernment. It is with humility and a desire to learn that I hope we are able to approach these texts today. The passage from Deuteronomy we heard spoke of God's intention on raising up a prophet for his people after Moses died. As God's prophet, Moses had served as a spokesperson for God to the people and as their chosen leader. His death would be hard on the people, a test of faith, to see if their God would continue to provide for and protect them even with Moses gone. The people are afraid And God knows this. You're going to be hearing that phrase again and again throughout the sermon. God knows. Because God knows that his people are scared of losing Moses, scared of being without someone to lead them, God promises to raise up a prophet like Moses. I can't help but think that this promise to send another prophet, or what was in actuality the series of prophets that followed, was an intentionally merciful one on God's part. God recognizes the Israelites' fear, and he acts. God knows their fears, and so God promises to send help. Now, what's interesting to me is that just before this passage in Deuteronomy 18, God warns the people not to imitate 
the current occupants of the promised land and engage in things like the occult, mediums, sorcery or witchcraft, and horrifically child sacrifice. It seems like an odd thing to precede God's promise to provide prophets for his people. But here's the connection. God knows that it is in human nature to want to be in the know, to understand, to be in control. But God never promises that we get to share his omniscience with him. The more time I spend with the Lord, in fact, the more I see that what he actually wants is for me to become dependent upon him. God wants us to know certain things. He wants us to know who he is, who we are, and how to follow him. But we just don't get to know everything. There are limits to the sorts of things that we need to know. Now, while it is possible to gain knowledge using the abhorrent methods that I had shared just a moment ago, we have to understand that God thought that their knowledge provides no benefit to us. They are, however, an honest understanding about how the nations were trying to exert control, how they were trying to wrest insight, maybe even demand results from the powers that be. In Ruthless Trust, Brennan Manning describes this desire quite well. Craving clarity, we attempt to eliminate the risk of trusting God. Our trust does not bring final clarity on this earth. It does not still the chaos or dull the pain or even provide a crutch. When all else is unclear, the heart of trust says, Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now I find it fascinating that God doesn't rebuke humans from wanting to seek knowledge. He doesn't just say, you don't need to know, just shut up and follow me. <laughs> but he does give us some boundaries. God's solution for his people is for them to follow the law and to be under the guidance of the prophets, spokesmen who were entrusted with his words, his knowledge, and what he intended the knowledge to be for his people, no more. N.T. Wright says it this way, the prophets are your means of knowing what God wants you to know about the future. And you must learn to live in trust with not knowing what God does not want you to know. We have to trust that God will continue to give us what we need, even if it is less than what we'd want. I believe this is why it's so important for us to practice regularly pausing and reassessing our posture before God as we read scripture. I'm speaking with we, including myself. Please hear it that way. We have to choose to orient ourselves as a student before the Lord, whether in the written word or in prayer. It requires diligence and humility and a radical openness to be instructed. Even as we grow in the faith and become more familiar with scripture, it is imperative that we maintain this stance before the Lord. We know some things, yes, but we do not know what it is that God wants to share with us in that moment together.
This, I believe, is what the psalmist means in verse 10 from today's psalm, Psalm 111. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who live accordingly. Now, the fear of the Lord here, we're not talking about terror. We're not talking about the feeling of shaking in your boots. But rather, we're talking about reverence, humility, and a posture of submission before the Lord. That, we are told, is the beginning of wisdom. Remember, God knows. We don't. If we want to learn, we have to recognize who God is in this situation. He's the teacher. And then who we are, the students. Just being in the presence of the living God reveals much for us to learn, as he is the embodiment of truth, goodness, life, wisdom, righteousness, mercy, and so on. That is the point of our psalm today. An honest understanding of knowing who God is, it ought to inspire us and move us to worship him. If we spend more time in his presence, we will move from just these awe-inspiring insights into the fuller knowledge of how to apply these to ourselves and allow us to live lives that actually begin to imitate God. This is what is called wisdom, or perhaps discernment, depending on where you see it. Now, our gospel reading from Mark is unsurprisingly packed full of knowledge and insights. Mark is kind of like a jam-packed, hit-the-ground-running type of guy. When we heard last week that Jesus called his first disciples, we knew that they were going to be on the move. Now, they have arrived at Capernaum, and the scene starts with Jesus entering the temple on the Sabbath. He starts to teach. But he's interrupted by a man possessed with an unclean spirit. It had to be quite jarring for the group to witness, right? They come together to worship, and all of a sudden, a demon interrupts. Jesus takes this curveball in stride, and he immediately silences and casts out the demon in an impressive show of authority. Now, there's some interesting things that I want to draw our attention to. For example, the demon has some knowledge. It knew who Jesus was and identified him as the Holy One of God. That wasn't common knowledge yet. But the demon knew. Knowledge, though, in and of itself, isn't enough. Right? James says it this way. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Knowledge isn't enough on its own. The attempt here that the demon was trying to do, from what I understand, was trying to use his knowledge to exert control, to exert authority over Jesus. Now, knowledge again isn't enough. This was clearly not the wise approach, right? What interests me most is that the people in the temple seem to be most focused on and astounded by Jesus' teaching instead of the exorcism. I can say without a shadow of a doubt that if I'm preaching at any point in time and in the middle of my preaching someone pops up and a demon starts talking, that's going to be the only thing people are talking about. I promise you. 
that will be the story, right? Now, thank God that's never happened to me. I don't look for that. But the point is, that's a pretty big showstopper. Yeah, the story of the exorcism gets spread far and wide, but the people, interestingly enough, seem to focus on the authority by which Jesus was teaching. It was his own authority. He wasn't quoting, as Rabbi so-and-so says. No, Jesus taught by his own authority. It's not just a coincidence that Jesus is called the way, the truth, and the life. His disciples, in fact, knew him as rabbi, the teacher. So, of course, that's going to shake them up. Now, the fullness of God was the one who was opening up the law and the prophets in a way that had to have set their hearts pounding, enough so that an exorcism takes the back seat. Knowledge, wisdom, and authority? Who is this guy? Our passages seem to make sense that we're talking about knowledge here, but as I make a little side jaunt into 1 Corinthians, I, I want you to stick with me. It might not be the first thing that comes to mind when you heard this passage from Paul this morning. Paul is talking about whether or not it is acceptable for a believer to eat food offered to an idol. Now, in true Pauline fashion, the answer is both yes and no, just depending on the context. But a closer look reveals that what this teaching centers around actually is the concept of knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge here in this passage is this. This is the knowledge that Paul is laying out. Verse 4, no idol in the world really exists. We all agree on that if we're believers. And there is no God but the one true God. Okay, that's verse 4. That's the fact, all right? But then Paul goes on to speak about how one ought to make the decision whether or not to eat meat based, offered to an idol based on the state of your companion's faith. Now, this rationale he gives is a hands-on lesson in wisdom for the early believers. Eat the meat, he says, if it will help strengthen your witness to the fact that idols are not real and that your companion's chains are broken in Christ. Abstain from eating the meat if your companion is a new convert and is struggling with shaking off the superstitions of their past. It's clear to me to see in passages like this the distinction between knowledge and wisdom and the need for both in order to live a faithful life. So what are we supposed to do with all of this? How are we meant to apply it? What's the point of all that I've just said? Now, as I've been reflecting on these scripture verses, um, I've come up with a few takeaways. The first is this. No matter what it is that we are hoping to understand or learn from the Lord, we have to take a student mindset with us. We have to. As I mentioned, this is by necessity a posture that requires humility. It requires us to acknowledge that God is God and we are not. That it is God who knows and we who wish to understand. We have to maintain this humility, not just as we pursue knowledge, but also as we wait to receive it. And then, of course, once we finally do receive it, 
we need humility to accept it. We need to be open to receive whatever insight God will reveal and to work hard not to assume that we already know what it is that we're going to hear. Whenever, whenever we ask for the Lord to give us insight, we can rest assured that he will give us what we need. He will. It is our job to prepare ourselves accordingly to receive that knowledge. Second is this. When God answers our prayers and provides us with his wisdom, it should prompt us to give him thanks and praise. Not only is our God omniscient and omnipotent, but he cares for us too. He loves us and he hears our prayers and then he answers them. Who else could provide for us like the Lord? This is the exact mindset that has inspired psalms and prayers for generations. When the Lord answers our prayers for insight and gives us what we need, should we not also say thank you? Now that doesn't mean you have to necessarily write your own psalm, but certainly please do. But a heartfelt prayer or time spent with your heavenly Father in response is the best gift you can give him to show your appreciation. Ask any parent, the only thing that they want is for their children to want to spend time with them too because they love them. That's all they want. And third and finally, and I'm not usually a three-point sermon person, so this is a good day for it. <laughs> but third and finally, make sure that you process and digest the knowledge that you receive and plan on it shaping the way that you're going to act. As we heard from Paul this morning, knowledge on its own puffs up. It's just a thing. It's something you've acquired. Knowledge itself won't do us any good unless we are able to let God show us what it is and how we should use it properly. Transforming this knowledge for us into wisdom and once he does, it is up to us to follow through and act on it, living lives transformed by the God who knows best. This can be a relief, right? This, oh, thank you. Thank you for giving me that answer. I finally know what to do now. But sometimes it can also be a hard pill to swallow. I know what it is that I have to do, but I don't know if I can do that. This is why our collect today is a petition asking God to lend us his strength and to protect us as we undertake the task of living righteously as broken people in a broken world. While we are waiting for knowledge and are waiting for those answers and waiting to understand the wise course of action to take, it is never more perilous for us. That is where we can go to the right or to the left so easily stray so easily harm ourselves, so easily harm one another. We need protection. We need that. We simply were just not made to be able to live this life alone. We need to help one another, yes, of course. But I hope that by the end of this, what you're taking away most is that we need God in order to survive. 
And not just with the big decisions, I'm talking with the day-to-day -day stuff too. The smaller things, the things that you think maybe you can handle on your own if you're like me. That is where we need God too. Without him, we won't survive. So, let us end today's lesson by praying together our collect, which we have earlier in the um, order of service. So if you have your physical bulletin, you can look at it. If you're just listening, you can look at it online. But I'm going to read this together for us, and I'd encourage you to join in. Because we need to trust God, that he is going to guide us, that he's going to protect us, and that he's going to continue to provide for us in the myriad of ways that we all are going to need in the future, even if it's not everything we want. Let's pray. Oh God, you know that we are set in the midst of many grave dangers, and because of the frailty of our nature, we cannot always stand upright. Grant that your strength and protection may support us in all dangers and carry us through every temptation. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Thanks be to God.